welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the podcast that remembers that Ron the Space Knight came with a translator, neutralizer, and energy analyzer. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one else ever seems to is writer, broadcaster, and TV crisp expert, Steve Berry. <laughs> Steve, what are you up to and where can we find it? Oh, goodness me, what am I up to? Well, good afternoon, or good evening, or good morning, whenever you're <laughs> listening to this. What am I doing at the moment? Well, I'm still freelancing, I'm still a writer, I still appear on television every now and again, usually at Christmas talking about stuff that, that everybody remembers. But for the last couple of years, I have been doing social media marketing for lots of brands, one of whom is BBC4. But by the time this goes out, I think I will no longer be the voice of BBC4 on social media. But anybody who's been watching Top of the Pops over the last couple of years and those repeats may well have seen something that I've tweeted, usually a joke about Doctor Who or something. Well, that's actually a really good setup for your first choice <laughs> because everyone, have a listen to this. That's Tears Are Not Enough by ABC, but you probably don't recognise it in that version. That's because it's slightly different to the album version, and indeed, I think, a later single version. So, Steve, what are we talking about here? Yeah, this this is something that I have has been a personal bugbear of mine for years, and that is single releases that are no longer played because they've been replaced by a version of the track that is now the common airplay version. This goes back to when I was about 10 years old, when I first probably got pocket money and I first had sort of agency to be able to go out and buy records of my own. I don't know if I was a particularly mercenary child with always one eye on the market and the resale market and the potential future eBay value of something. But one that I remember specifically for this, and I think everybody knows this, is that the Blue Peter single, the one that was the recording by Mike Oldfield that Simon Groom did and so on, and they released it as a 7-inch in aid of the Cambodia appeal. Now, this is 1980, right? It came out, it got played on the radio, and DJs complained about the 7-inch version of it because it had this weird kind of dead stop. It was almost in the middle of a passage of music where you expect to have a natural conclusion. Now, I'm sure, from a kind of prog rock, Mike Oldfield kind of way, I'm sure from that perspective, from his perspective, it, was mu- it musically made sense. But it, DJs were always complaining that it caught them out on the hop. And they'd just be about to go into a link or something, but suddenly there'd be this three seconds of dead air. Now, that's an unusual thing to complain about, and it's a strange thing that DJs would have the power mm. to do what happened, which was that Mike Oldfield went and re-recorded the 7-inch. Mm. It was repressed with a new ending, and because this was a news story because I must have heard this on Radio 1 or something, I nipped out into town and immediately tried to buy the 7-inch because I wanted the version <laughs> that was, the li- was going to be limited edition in future, which is, you know, pretty wise for a nine-year-old kid. Failed, because I ended up with the version that is probably the one that gets played most often now. And I'm sure if you wanted to, you could find the original version somewhere because people will have recordings of it. So that was a kind of a known case of it. But there are so many that aren't known that, pe- uh, that whenever I hear a song... And I expect people to know that this is not the right version. That it isn't. And again, very young, my own pocket money, went out to buy a copy of Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads. Now, there's any version you hear played on the radio now of Once in a Lifetime will have this weird kind of mid-break in it where there's all this stuff about water, water above, water flowing, water beyond. Mm. And that's not on 
the single version. And I don't think it's... Whenever you see the video, mm. it's not in that either. But any version that's ever played on the radio, it's always in there. And I have this weird kind of, you know, that kind of slightly uncomfortable, that dissonant feeling where mm. you're expecting a bit of music to move on to the next, but it never does. And so this, that weird little bit in there shouldn't be in there. As far as I'm concerned, the right version mm. is whatever the edited version for the 7-inch was. Well, that brings me round to one of my big bugbears with this, was obviously the early now, that's what I call music albums. Yeah. Everyone had, and everyone listened to them endlessly. So there's some songs where I know only as in relation to the song before and the song after them. But when the first Now album was reissued on CD, yeah. as an anniversary thing a couple of years ago, they didn't use the single edits of the tracks. They used album versions most of them and it felt a bit, bit it is cheap weird. really it didn't just didn't seem right I mean it depends it depends why it's happened and often mm. often the Blue Peter theme DJs complained mm. I've no idea why Talking Heads didn't do that I know why Wet 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 re-recorded their version mm. was because they'd used in in again in the middle middle 8 bit They'd used a lyric which they, which I think Monty Pello had lifted from another song. Oh, it was Squeeze, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. And they hadn't paid for the rights of it. And rather than settle out of court and pay the rights, mm. they went into studio and they re-recorded that middle eight, and they released a different version. And again, that's so I have the seven-inch version, which is the version that mm. has that lifted lyric. But any time it's played on the radio, it's the wrong lyric. So you can't mm. join in. You can't do it at karaoke. People get annoyed. The other one that, again, it's probably again just a, just a single edit, just a different, was Addicted to Love by Robert Palmer. Right, I don't remember it being different well, it's, at all. It's only that there's a little, there's a little less extra at the start, mm. or maybe a little more, just a little bit more of that kind of drum intro. I think mm. lasts eight bars longer on the seven inch than it does... On the version that's in that you know you get on the album, and as you say, most DJs now, and in fact most radio stations, it's all just it's all ingested, isn't it, into a computer yeah. and played out from a computer. So nobody's going to go out and seek a recording of the original seven-inch pressing just so they can they can put that out. And the prime example for me of of a song being played that was completely the wrong version because the computer system mm. said no was back in the days when Dale Winton used to do Pick of the Pops, and this is we're talking about what, 10, 15 years ago now when he was doing it. And he came to play What Difference Does It Make by The Smiths. And it yeah. was just after the Sound of The Smiths compilation album had come out. So presumably someone somewhere had ingested that. And because of Johnny Marr's particular favouring of the Peel Session mm -hmm. version rather than the seven-inch single version, that must have been the version that was ingested. So he's counting down the charts... And when it comes to playing What Difference Does It Make, he's playing a Peel session, which is, <laughs> imagine sitting at home and, and, and sitting in that and just going wrong, 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 mm. wrong, wrong. There are probably countless examples of them, but, there are, but it's very strange, I think, that it's effectively a willful rewriting of yeah. musicians' own history where they want to say, no, that version no longer exists, it's now this version. And it's very annoying because if, you kind of, if your memory mm. goes one way and everybody else's memory goes the other way, you get lots of arguments. Well, and also, <laughs> you get unfortunate things, like a big bugbear of mine is things that were hits in the late 50s where you look back now and you can't understand why people got so excited about them. Particularly, I think, of The Shadows and Russ Conway, where mm. you hear them now and you think, that's not very exciting. And it turns out all these people, because they only had mono in those days, when yeah. stereo came in the mid-60s, they did recreations of these things in stereo, which sound tame. And yet, yeah. if you ever hear the original Apache by The Shadows, it's actually... It's almost terrifying. Yeah, I, I had a I had a similar experience with I think um, only sixteen by Craig Douglas. Mm. I think then again, especially when all those kind of re-released seven inches came out in the mid eighties of all sixties hits, 
and that was it. Yeah, you get it home and you play it, and you're going, whatever the first version of a song is that you hear is always the definitive version for mm. you. Whenever you hear a different edit and a different cut of it, it doesn't sound right at all. Mm. Uh, it annoys me endlessly that I can't get the two Muppet Show albums in the original format of the way that they were put together because they were sold as LPs mm. and they were supposed to run on from one to the other. So they were bridging bits that had been put in between tracks. Now, when you buy a CD of it, it's always a compilation of different bits. Mm. Yeah, you got to stick with the original running order. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why, as much as it annoys people to me, there'll always be five members of the Smiths. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's by the by. Uh, I don't know whether Adam Ant had any different single versions to the ones that we know now, but in the roundabout way, he's the no, next it choice. Does, it does link. Get up, Rory Flat! Right, boys, now over you go! Ah, Brownlee! Now don't you fret, Mrs. Brownlee. Only the best for my lads. Alaska floor, air strip, waterproof. Recruits, with oh. use of... There, there, Ooh. there. And of course, Alaska floor fabric, when we want a little extra cushioning. Elaster plast. There, there, there. Fixed, bayonets! Ow! Brownlee? But actually, yeah, well, there is there is something there. There is Kings of the Wild Frontier. I think the single version is very different from the album version of Kings of the Wild Frontier. That's my era, you know. That's, yeah. that's my awakening to the to the wonders of pop music and how brilliant it could be and how mm. wonderful and colourful and how unreal and what promise it had to a different potential life. And yeah, I used to dress up as Adamant in the privacy of my home. <laughs> Because my dad used to go out before I was born. He used to go on holiday to different places like Spain and what have you. He'd always come back with his like leather waistcoats <laughs> or um, or belts fashioned out of beads and leather strips and so on. And you could sit at home and you could wear your white school shirt and dress up with all these different kind of Indian or you know Mexican outfits and just sort of pretend you were a member of uh, Adam and the Ants. Because that was the beauty of it. You didn't mm. have to look exactly like Adam Ant. And of course, he was always on the cover of Smash Hits. And that is the... F- this is the memory that I have, which is a false memory, which I've since managed to work out why. So there was an issue of Smash Hits with Adamant on the cover, and I would have sworn blind to anybody for probably 20 years after that the, the giveaway on the front of that Smash Hits were Adamant plasters. Now, by which I mean the kind of adhesive plasters that you would stick, or in fact, if you were me and you didn't have white makeup, you would probably just stick a, a you know a band-aid across your nose to pretend you were adamant. But it turns out that that is definitely false memory because I was partly right and I was partly wrong. <laughs> so what they gave away on the front cover of Smash Hits was plasters, was elastoplast plasters, but being made specifically for kids, and they were called elastoplast heroes. And the idea was, presumably, was that instead of having just an ordinary plaster, you could have this one with a, a printed design on it that would make out that you were some sort of brave, brave little soldier. Well, I've got some of them here. Have you got a uh, list of the different... What was printed on them? The Go Survivor on. of the Great Gravel Trip, mm-hmm. Hero of the Battle of Wounded Knee, yeah. Survivor of the Great Ant Bite, which... That's the one. That's in. There we go. That's but, it. But uh, there's also Trapped Hand in Car Boot Metal. Now, I think you might... If you've had your hand <laughs> trapped in the car boot, you might need something more serious than a flimsy <laughs> child to you, lost the plaster. You might, you might get a blood blister, though, if it was just, <laughs> a, just your finger caught on it. So, yeah, it's that, it's that Ant Bite one. Mm. So you, you combine a cover image of Adam Ant in his, you know, in his proper Kings of the Wild Frontier pomp and his you know, Charge of the Light Brigade jacket and then give away some plasters, one of which is... 
an ant bite surviving one. <laughs> and you think about listening to that album and, you know, Ants Invasion and mm. stuff like that. You know, that, that, that. I don't know why. Why were we all obsessed with ants? What was well, the thing about... people actually got bitten by them to the extent Not... it would require a plaster? Yeah, well? I think, I, I, I mean, nowadays, you know, you get them printed with all kinds of characters. Mm. You? It's like Peppa Pig and what have you. But in those days, yeah, just just something as simple. If you think about the industry I work in, marketing, and think about somebody's clever idea to turn something as simple as a plaster into some sort of medal for bravery, it's quite quite sophisticated. But then to think, well, I'll, I'll know what we do. We, we'll give them away. <laughs> we'll give away free sample on the front cover of Smash Hits magazine, and everybody will, will presumably want them. But, I mean, they didn't last. Mm. Otherwise, we'd still have them now. Um, but maybe it was. Maybe they felt a bit sarcastic. Well, you see, it, that's interesting because I did try to Google. So I could only find one photograph of them out because presumably they all got used. And oh yeah, hasn't yeah, anymore. So, yeah. so yeah. that's the sort of yeah. That, it's that kind of ephemera, isn't it? That you, you, everyone's convinced it doesn't exist because there's just no examples mm-hmm. of it anymore. And short of there being yeah a fresh warehouse discovered somewhere, <laughs> which has got a stock of them. But it was, yeah, no, I, I, it was much later, actually, just partly from doing the Top of the Pops mm. stuff for BBC4, which meant that I uncovered the, the, these photos of the front cover of it and finally, finally scratched that itch after many, <laughs> Did many years. you get a special plaster for scratching the itch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I survived the great nostalgia wars of 1989. Yeah. Right, well, we're moving into a completely different area for your next choice, which is represented by this. <laughs> My name is Laura Keitlinger, and this is the United States of Television, a viewer's digest of American TV. Okay, well, it's fairly obvious what that was called, and Channel 4 late at night used to be full of this stuff. So, Steve, what was the United States of Television? Yeah, (laughs) I have only the vaguest memories of it. You're right, there was a period in the late 80s, early 90s, I think, where... Somebody thought a cheap way of making new TV shows was to get lots of strange clips of weird stuff that was happening all over the world and compile them together and then have somebody sarcastic talking over the top. Now, I think that's a format that's stood the test of time and would probably still work now. But this series, United States of Television, ran for a very short period of time, very late night, and the person that they found to link those items Mm. was an American comedian called Laura Keitlinger, who was very dry very droll Mm. and seemingly didn't go on to greater success she's kind of like the female Kelly Monteith you know she got one Mm. one run at fame in the UK and then never and then sort of disappeared back home again and she's still a working stand-up and she's still a working writer but never really achieved the fame that she Mm. deserved in the UK and that's possibly because largely her job was just to talk over trashy clips Um, but they did have presumably a good budget for getting guests in. They'd often have uh, her in the studio interviewing people. And the one that really stuck out in my mind, one moment of her dry humour that really stuck out in my mind was when she was talking to Burt Ward, who played Robin, to Adam West's Batman. And I think she actually interviewed the two of them, but separately. Mm. And they cut backwards and forwards within the two. 
And Burt Ward, at one point, after presumably they showed a few clips of the 60s Batman series and made some sarcastic remarks on it, Burt Ward said, I can tell you a secret about Adam West. And without missing a beat, and without waiting for him to respond, <laughs> Laura Keitlinger just said, he has a vagina. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and that joke just lodged in my mind. Just that response of being so atypical lodged in my mind. And she did, she did a book. I had a book of hers. I still own it somewhere called uh, Quick Shots of False Hope. I think she deserved to be a lot more famous as a comedian, especially mm. kind of she, she, she had a very British sensibility, which probably would have hindered her career in the States. But I think she was very straight, very dry, and she'd be the sort of comedian, I think, now, who would do tremendously well, but uh, has somehow resolutely remained in the States. And that series never came back. I believe it was mm. one, one lot, yeah. six episodes, late into the night. And I think she's, you know, she deserved better. She deserved better treatment by the commissioners. Well, it's odd that it's not more well-remembered because there were quite a few attempts around then to do a crossover between mm. our TV and American. I mean, there was Michael Moore's TV Nation, quite, Manhattan yeah. Cable. There's the one no one remembers, Where's Elvis This Week with Jon Stewart. That one I definitely don't remember. Which no. I only saw because I think Richard Herring was on it one week, <laughs> and that's the only reason I watched it. You've been documenting his career, so you know, where, you know everywhere he <laughs> Yeah, he did take out that up. restraining order. No, but, yeah. but you're right, no, Laurie Pike was, was, was all almost the replacement mm. for Laura Keitlinger. I, I don't know if it was that they filmed the United States of Television in the States and edited it here. Mm. I don't recall whether or not it had that weird sheen of an NTSC to PAL conversion, it standards conversion. It doesn't appear to, no. But, um, but Laurie Pike seemed to just replace mm. her. It was yeah. like, we, you know, we'll have, we'll have another slightly sarcastic, mm. red-haired, attractive female yeah. American comedian to pre- pre- present all of our trashy TV. And you don't know how, you don't know what the decisions are that have been no. made behind the scenes. But it was, there was a glut of them, wasn't there? Around yeah. that turn of that decade. And then, even after that, I mean, you know, if you look at some of the shows that were represented on United States television, things like Cowboy Cooking with Bruce Wood and Sexy Girls and Sexy Guns, mm. I think somebody basically just thought, you know, it's costing us money to buy these things in. Why don't we just get people who are doing stupid things on cameras here and then take over TV happened, yeah, which obviously absolutely. was where Adam and Joe started. Mm. But I really think that that was the direct replacement for these sort of shows because it was cheaper. And you know they could probably probably yeah. get away without paying people as well. Well, nowadays you would find all that stuff on YouTube anyway. Yeah, and I think you you hear some terrible things that TV commissioning people are saying that uh, oh we we're, we're never going to do sketch comedy, we're never going to do broken comedy, we're not going to do those sort of things because mm. that sort of stuff is all found on YouTube. But YouTube isn't going around commissioning them, and YouTube doesn't have doesn't have a slot. You know, in the late nights after mm. the pub when people were coming home. And watching them, and I think you know, YouTube tends to be a young person's medium. There's some need something for the kind of late age teenagers, yeah. like I was in the in in that in you know eighty nine ninety. But maybe maybe people aren't making terrible television anymore. <laughs> maybe it isn't just that. Maybe they can't. Maybe they can't broadcast it. Maybe that's why they do have to have it on YouTube. I think we should leave that line of conversation. <laughs> Okay, well, again, it's a complete, not vault fast, but because it's kind of in the same bizarre why would anyone do this area as Cowboy Cooking with Bruce Ward, which is your next choice. Here's an advert for it. If you're a smoker, inside this little can is a legitimate alternative. This is Skull Bandits, an individual portion of wintergreen-flavoured tobacco in a neat, pre-moistened pouch. What you do is put one between your lip and gum. What you get is great tobacco taste without lighting up and you can enjoy it wherever you are if you're a smoker 
Try Skoll Bandits. 20 pouches to a can. Take a pouch instead of a puff. Okay, Steve, what were Skoll Bandits? Okay, well, so my father had a, a lifelong struggle with his addiction to tobacco. You know, he was, he, he was brought up in the era when it was you know, expected that people would smoke and, the, and it was probably considered healthy for the period that he was a smoker. And we, when I was younger, we spent a little bit of time living in the States, about 18 months, 79 to 80, where we lived over there. I've got photos of him actually sitting at computer monitors in, in you know, in, and everybody in the office is all smoking. <laughs> you say these things where it looks strange now when you see something like Mad Men and everyone's smoking away. But there was a concerted effort at the start of the 80s that people would stop smoking. And I was vehemently anti-smoking. I used to write, make little signs on my, uh, my bedroom <laughs> door saying it was no smoking and that if you're breathing the bad stuff out I'm breathing it in and all these excuses <laughs> that my parents used to come up for like basically chain smoking in front of the telly of an evening and my dad tried loads of things he even moved on to, he tried to do roll-ups he had a little machine and I used to make him little cigarettes really? out, of the, out of the out of the roll-ups yeah it was a little little not a little mechanical hand rolling mm. thing it didn't work and to stop smoking he thought well he'll move on to tobacco and nicotine in different mm. forms now nowadays it'd be probably vapor yeah. but in those days there were limited forms that you could get tobacco in and obviously americans you know were big into their chewing tobacco and it's this idea that you would have something that you could put in your mouth that instead of smoking that you would somehow absorb the nicotine from the tobacco through your through the the, the thin membranes of the interior <laughs> of your cheek so Skoll Bandit, Skoll is a, is, a, is a US brand of tobacco. And the Bandit is an adaptation of what I believe is a Swedish idea for a little tiny pouch, a little tiny paper or white pouch of moist tobacco. And the idea is, and I don't know if this is true, but the idea is, is that a tobacco goes into your mouth. Now, I don't know whether it remains in the pouch mm. and you shove the pouch in your cheek between your sort of top lip and your teeth and then it's somehow sort of leached out, mm. the nicotine's leached out, or whether or not you, um, you're supposed to sort of tear it open and sort of start chewing it or shove it up, <laughs> shove it up your nose. You know, it's, it's, it's called moist snuff. They sort of came out in, about, in the early 80s, and then there was a lot of hoo-ha about mm. um, UK government ministers taking backhanders from the tobacco industry because they built, Skoll built a factory in Scotland mm. that was subsequently closed down. And Skull Bandits themselves, I think, were banned probably by about 86. Yeah, I read up on it. Apparently it was Kenneth Clark. Who, yeah. mm. the, the official reason was because they thought it might appear glamorous to children. Well, might take it, which I mm. don't quite see. Well, they came, in, they came in a round, they came in a round yeah. tin. They looked a little bit like, mm. a tobacco, like an old-fashioned tobacco tin. But you'd mm. open that up and there'd be a sort of a wheel... And they'd all be slotted in, all these little white pouches, slotted like after eight minutes, you know. Right. All in little envelopes and all sort of mm. slotted around there. But they were white. And yes, um, mm. he would be right in that yeah. respect, that they were attractive. Because you think like, well, this is, this is I can do something grown up and illicit now without being mm. caught. Because I'm not going to go home yeah. smelling of cigarettes. Like if you, <laughs> if, but I can't picture anybody going to the bike sheds. There was no episode mm. of Grange Hill. No. Where everyone was found <laughs> passing around little pillow-shaped pouches of tobacco. To kids and they must have only been like they're basically the size of a scampi fry and the sort of the similar sort <laughs> yes, of dimensions yeah, of yeah. you know so there must have been some there must have been somebody in the early 80s who said you know what we need to do everything has to come in little pouches now mm. that look a little bit like pillows and i think the the part of the reason they were banned there was probably a a, a campaign 
by Ash or whoever mm. to say that they would give you mouth cancer. I, I don't remember know that, that was... being mentioned, but I can't find any of the reports. That I, I don't. I it. don't know whether you, you don't know why these things mm. happen. I mean, they can be because they just didn't take off, mm. and it doesn't seem yeah. to me they've, they've tried to bring snuff back millions of times, mm. and this idea that people would go around handing each other, like opening tins and offering <laughs> each other a little paper envelope. If it's easier to do something like smoke a cigarette, then people are going to carry on doing that. And I think even now, especially now, mm. rather, with the smoke-free bans in pubs, yeah. etc., I still think that the, they never quite managed to make it socially acceptable to take a little mm. pouch and shove it in your mouth. But my, they, I remember them being in our kitchen drawer for years. So even my dad must have tried them, given up on that straight away. <laughs> and then it <laughs> left for me to discover. They probably kept coins and keys in the tin when mm. they were all gone. I remember the tin because it was one of those things where, you know, the the hard kids in school, one of them would somehow get hold of the tin and bring it in and carry it conspicuously around the playground. The same way they did with, like, nudie yeah. lady playing cards. Yeah. Or yeah. Uh, I remember there was a kid in our school that somehow got hold of a, a John Player special waistcoat, <laughs> which he, he wore a... every play. And, you know, a couple of gullible people followed him around and go, wow, they've got an adult thing. And That's it. Else anything, kind of, yeah. anything illicit, anything that wasn't, we weren't allowed, and because tobacco was you know, conspicuously banned mm. from schools, yeah, any kind of thing there where you'd somehow manage to smuggle it in. But they do that with everything, don't they, schools? Mm. They'll ban... If, as soon as something becomes popular, they'll ban it. Mm. And I imagine that kid with the skull bandits in probably just had a collection of novelty rubbers or something. In there, yeah. <laughs> but I don't even think he would be or dishing them Or just lots of tins. Oh, just like, yeah, <laughs> big tin fetish, yeah. <laughs> they were probably collectible now. And I wish I'd kept that draw. Oh, well, let's move on to some sounds that represent possibly slightly more wholesome craze for children. the sound of Starblazer, the electronic space command belt. Steve, what did this involve? Okay, so this was this was the the toy that you wanted in Christmas 1981. And I got it. Now Starblazer itself was it, as, it, as it implies, it was a sort of brand name for a series of different toys. And the Starblazer Space Command Belt was the like was the, the, the lead toy, I think. It was the main one that came out. Now they did do some other things. There was a, a sort of space pilot flying kind of training game which was nothing more than just a little radar set across a couple of handles. Oh, yeah. And they did, they tried to introduce into the market those infrared guns where you could sort of shoot at the gun that your opponent was carrying and in a kind of primitive laser tag kind of way score some points against him. But the Space Command Belt, released as it was, just in the era of the final series of Blake 7 in the run-up to Christmas... (laughs) was very, very desirable. And the, the allusion to Blake 7 is not coincidental because mm. the Space Command Belt, fashioned, I recall, out of a kind of blue marbled plastic and therefore very flimsy, had a gun which was attached to a main unit via means of a curly telephone yes. wire cable, yeah. exactly like the Liberator guns oh, yes. in Blake yeah. 7. So anybody who's as obsessed with Blake 7 mm. as I was would immediately want to get them. And those sounds, yeah, are very, very, very nostalgic. I'm pretty sure that one of those crops up in uh, Steve Wright in the Afternoon, one of the music trails, one of the music beds that he plays, probably for factoids or something. But um, all that, they do, do that um, data bites or something, don't they? And it's got, <laughs> got to have a sort of futuristic space noise. So it had a number of different noises, mm. um, and it had two very powerful LEDs, one 
housed in the main unit, which you could fasten around your waist with mm. a, a fabric belt. And then the, there were five different gun noises. And you, the best thing was you could combine the different noises. So you, right. could, you could have the, um, the jetpack motors, which were just that very simple kind of rising cadence of white noise followed by a descending cadence <laughs> of white noise, or a variety of different, presumably sort of square wave sound effects that you could do i remember the rockets and i remember mm. the uh, the bombs with just that kind of descending arpeggio i've got sound. a list of them here personal rocket motors yeah sonic so. scanner multi-role space weapon with flashing barrel light which i think yeah. covered a couple of them and on yeah. off switch that's, oh, that that's was a big selling a, point but it also had a detachable microphone as well there was yeah. a, it would it, there was a little plastic microphone at the front and you could hold that up to your mouth and talk and it and <laughs> your distorted amplified voice would come out of the the belt's main unit which was no use at all because he just he just sounded like a you know very very primitive robot voice sound well you say that but the instructions actually say all sounds are exceptionally realistic users should take due care yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, because people might actually think they're being attacked <laughs> by a spaceman yeah that could happen that could happen <laughs> uh, it didn't happen too much in in my village the main issue with it was always that the bits that clipped mm. the gun and the microphone to the main unit, main housing were mm. very flimsy and very easily breakable. And I think I definitely would have received it for Christmas '81, mm. and I think it would have been probably wouldn't have lasted to my birthday in March '82 mm. uh, in terms of staying intact. And I expect again, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing where if you're going to be collecting these things on mm. eBay, you need yeah. to have the fully intact, non-plastic broken mm. bits and the clip still intact and so on. Well, that brings me round to. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how many people listening will be aware, but you've written a very large book about toys. And yeah. It's quite obvious that you managed to get hold of some of them. How did you find playing with things like... I, I can't remember whether this is in there or not, but no, how did you find no. playing if with I things ever, like this again? If I ever get round to writing volume two <laughs> uh, of a toys book, the Space Command Belt will be in there. Yeah. Problem is that the memory is always much more vivid than mm. the reality of it. And I found the way in which I wrote the book was I bought loads of these toys on eBay, played with them for a bit, took a photograph of them and then sold them again on eBay. Mm. And they're inevitably disappointing. I think what you bring to it when you're a kid is your, your imagination. So when you are playing with the Space Command Belt, you can convince yourself you're a member of the Liberator crew. <laughs> uh, and it doesn't really matter that the noises themselves are all very primitive and that the diode <laughs> on the top, <laughs> it's a very sophisticated way of saying an on-off light, yeah. was, you know, was just an unblinking red LED. Mm. I, I think you just your imagination filled in the gaps, and you don't, as a rule, tend to keep hold of all those toys and keep no. playing with them from your childhood right through to your adulthood. And therefore, there is this there's this enormous gap, and your memory reaches back and it remembers everything being fun. Then you, if you try and reacquire it, it's just very disappointingly small both in terms of scale and in terms of playability and the value that it has to you mm. so i would always say to people just buy the toys play with them get rid of them forget them you know, forget them they're never gonna they're never gonna live up mm. to the experiences you had when you were a kid and i've seen i think i've seen some pictures of somebody online with a space command belt mm. and a picture of him as a kid and a picture of him now yeah. and you, the thing is just dwarfed in his hand. You know, these, mm. are, ma these are made for a nine, ten-year-old yeah, yeah. kid's hands. They're not made to be held by an adult. And also, even, even it's true to say, even then, the playability of anything, the amount of time you would spend with that 
anything yeah. is usually a lot less time than the amount of time you would have looked forward to getting it. So you might spend months and months and months waiting for Christmas to get that thing. And then when you get it, you end up playing with it for half an hour. Yeah. Sometimes the anticipation and the nostalgia for an object is a lot more, mm. it's worth a lot more to you as an yeah. individual than it is actually owning the thing. Well, in possibly the most convoluted thing I've ever done on one of Go these, on. I apologise for this in advance. I'm sure if you've got a Starblazer electronic space command belt on Christmas morning, you will resent having to go to church immediately afterwards <laughs> and hear this. singing morning is broken and they may have been using this which was steve the hymn book for schools that was dished out called morning has broken some people had a different book they had a uh, one that came which was a time from bbc radio mm. which was called i believe come and praise which is largely blue it was an album big, of that, which uh, i've got there we go <laughs> so the book you know would have all your hymns in it yeah my school had essentially the same book recovered, re-released, or maybe it was the original version of Morning Is Broken, and it very vividly stuck in my head. It was a bright, burnt orange cover with no graphics on it other than a large sun, as represented by a big yellow circle, and underneath it, written in big, bold letters, the words, Morning Has Broken. The font face is the same one that they use for Dad's Army. Yes. <laughs> uh, Cooper Black in yeah. italic. Um, you could at least call it the Pet Sounds font. Possibly, it yeah. Cooler, but yeah, <laughs> you need that. You, you need, but it's nothing more seventies than that font yeah. written in italics. Morning has broken. Now they were particularly burned into my memory, not because of their ubiquity, but mm. actually because you weren't necessarily allowed one of those in your school assembly. Now I went to a quite uh, a Church of England school. These days, I think that you you leave that in what would be called year six. We had uh, bottom infants, middle infants, top infants, junior one, two, three, four. Junior four would be what is now year six before you go to senior school. And it was only the people in junior four who were allowed to have hymn books in the assemblies in the morning. And, of course, they were the ones sitting right at the back of the school hall and on the uh, the forms. We used to call them forms, but I think they're also called benches. You know the ones that you yeah. used to use during you know, your PE lessons? Yeah. So they'd have two rows of those at the back. And people could sit on those. Anybody sitting at the, anyone sitting any further forward would have to read all the hymns off two giant A1 uh, <laughs> flip sheets. It was all pre-printed. Yeah. It wasn't a flipboard. It wasn't a projector. It was it was a big bulky sort of so, you know basically a giant book. So it was like book. a very bad version of the subterranean homesick blues yes, video. <laughs> exactly, yeah, with them and they were properly you know this isn't handwritten. These were properly printed. All these hymns on there. And I think you know the investment in making sure that kids remember religious education when they are that young mm. and remember who God is and so on before you get a bit older and realise that the whole thing's just very, very strange and all made <laughs> up. But they're all, also all the kids at the front sitting down on their backside, cross-legged on the rubber mats, would be reading from that. And similarly, the people, you know, a little further up. And then at the back, you'd be given these, these hymn books. Mm. Morning has broken. And so it would have in it all the classics, Lord of the Dance, said he, uh, you know, which is the mm. basis of a Richard Herring yeah. routine. Give me oil in my heart, keep me praying. 
<laughs> but I always remember it as give me oil in my lamp eye, pray. Because <laughs> of the way you used to sing it. And, that, and that's, the, that's, that's the one with sing Hosanna to the king of kings. Yeah, that's, that'll always be somebody at the end of that song who would accidentally <laughs> yeah. sing of kings. Um, and I was, I was trying to remember some of the other songs from it. I mean, Morning Has Broken, obviously. Mm. Some people think that's a Cat Stevens song. But, uh, but it is, uh, you know, it's a, re- it's a religious song. I think it was, a, again, it was stolen. You know, Lord of the Dance, the tea, mm. um, Lord of the Dance, <laughs> rather, is a stolen stolen piece of music given lyrics yeah. by some uh, British guy. I always think of Morning as Broken as being the retooled song for that. I think it was for Kenwood Toasters in the <laughs> early right. 80s. But, uh, waffles and fried bread, bagels <laughs> and crumpets. <laughs> that's, that's what it means to me. There's another one that I remember that I don't think mm. many people remember. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sing it to you and I'm going to see what you do. When I reach the end of the one line, mm-hmm. okay? So, oh Jesus, I have promised. You're not doing it. Okay. No. What you're supposed to do is clap three times. Okay. Right. So you'd be, oh Jesus, I have promised <laughs> to serve thee to the end. And I can't remember something about being a lover <laughs> and a friend at the end there. The other ones, the ink is black, the page is white. Oh, right. That's, the that's done by Greyhound. They're all very yeah. syncopated. And of course, the classic one, about the, which is obviously based on the story of the Good Samaritan, but had that classic line in it where it says, I was cold, I was naked. Oh, with everyone Were you there? Everybody at <laughs> the back row, sniggering away. But you never, the, the, the point with these books is you never see them again after mm. that time. Yeah. And, if, you know, church, if you ever go to church, mm. as, you know, you often have to, if you're, a, you know, in a small village like I grew up in and you've, you're in the Scouts or, mm. you know, or in any of the, anything related to, any social activity would usually be centred around the church. Yeah. But from then on in, the hymn books are these big, Severe hardback things with like tiny, tiny printing and all mm. that kind of turned to number hymn number one hundred and ninety. Whereas we must have had a selection of about eight to yeah. sing and just do them on rote every mm. time. And they are, you know, they're not the sort of things that crop up on eBay. No, well, the one that buy again. The one that we had in our church was it was called Celebration Hymnal and it had a vivid yellow cover with a sort of paisley design on it. But the, the only thing I remember about it was that me and one of my sisters used to, there was a balcony in our church, and we used to ask if we could go up there. Mm. Presumably, you know, trying to convince people that we were, we were being closer to God by being higher up, but actually <laughs> just we, we just weren't interested. No uh, one can but, see you, yeah. But one Sunday, because we were so bored, we decided to have a contest, seeing who, who could push and balance a copy of Celebration Hymnal the furthest over the edge of the balcony. Without it dropping. Went too far, <laughs> one fell off, but there was a postscript to it because we just thought, oh, well, ooh, that's the end of that then. But outside, afterwards, my grandmother was haranguing my mother, saying, oh, it's terrible, Mrs. So-and-so was standing there and a, a hymn book landed next to her. And we, we were standing there, oh, no, that's awful, and snickering behind our hands. Which Must be a sign from God. <laughs> <laughs> Go forth and start singing more. <laughs> You're not loud enough. I don't know if we used to we used to be encouraged to be sing loudly from mm. the back. The teachers always used to stand at the front and tell us that they could hear mm. if we weren't singing. Because yeah. often, particularly if, if you got to the age where you were like no longer really believed in mm. it all, you'd just mouth along the words. Mm. And or if you were just lazy, you know, so yeah. I don't want to go through singing this again. There's eight verses of this, mm. you know, and choruses in between. And you would, you just mouth along. And yeah, the teachers would stand at the front and say, I can't hear anybody singing in the back there. And you'd be convinced that they knew exactly 
exactly also, where you are. Also, it isn't saying I can hear if you're not singing. A bit like if a tree falls <laughs> over in the forest and no one's there, does it make a sound? You know? but it's very strange that, the, that our school hall was the centre of all activity in our school. So it was like the morning assemblies were there. Your lunch was there. They introduced packed lunches in my time at school. Prior to that, everything was just given to you. You just served it, you mm. ate it, and cleared off. But then they suddenly came up with this revolutionary idea of having packed lunches, which again I remember because I was sitting there and having a conversation about Kings of the Wild Frontier. Uh, <laughs> and my, my mate at school t- coming up to me and said, I've discovered that another, a name of another ant. It's not just Adamant, there's another ant. There's an ant called Ant Marco. And I was like, who is Ant Marco? And he showed me the record. And of course, at the end of, the, uh, of each song, it had the credits for the writers. Ah. It would say Ant slash Marco. <laughs> Marco Peroni. Yeah. And he was like, Ant Marco. Right, we now know one of the other names of one of the other As well ants. as Ant Merrick, Ant, Ant, Ant Terry Ant Lee, Ant Gary Tibbs, yeah. Ant, Ant yours truly. Yeah. <laughs> but those are happy days. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I'm, I have this little theory that and it might not be worth, you know, for me particularly, this seemed to be this era when I was like between nine and ten. And I ju- it was at the end of junior school, before going to senior school, where your whole life turns upside down and girls and you, yeah, everyone's this serious. This is the Fresh Prince and stuff. from Bel Air uh, theme song. But no, the, <laughs> yeah. but there is this period, I think, and you get you, almost like the, it's the most receptive I've been to any memories at all. It's like everything that's lived with me all these years, is, it was imprinted on me in those kind of last last two years, and certainly the last 18 months of what would be now junior school, even to the point where, from a religious perspective, I can remember the prayer that they used to make us say at the end of every school, at <laughs> uh, the end of every school day. So you'd put your chairs on the top of the desk, mm. and then you'd all have to bow your heads, and you'd have to say, Jesus, keep me safe this night, secure from all my fears. May angels guard me while I sleep, till morning light appears. Amen. And well, I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> Steve, it's been a pleasure. It's been Thank lovely. You. Thanks yeah. a lot, Tim. Cheers. Higher Than The Sun by Tim Worthington. The story of Bloodless by My Bloody Valentine, Foxface Alpha by Saint Etienne, Scream Adelica by Primal Scream, Bandwagon S by Teenage Fan Club, and how Creation Records took on the world and nearly won. Find out more at timworthington.org.